This is God's holy word, so, so let's take heed to it. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Thus ends the reading, this reading of God's holy and inspired word. May he write his eternal truth upon our hearts. Let's pray. Our great and our great God and heavenly Father, you hear our prayers as we offer them up in Jesus' name, and we ask in that name even now that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that we would take to heart this dire warning from the very lips of our Savior, that we would pay heed to it, and by the Holy Spirit would walk in the way of light and of truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as you've probably read newspapers, you've, you've no doubt noticed those little pictorial cartoons, usually on the editorial pages of the newspapers. You know, with just a, a few simple lines, the artist sketches a picture of a particular political social or economic situation that people typically face in everyday life. By means of a, of a simple cartoon, he conveys a, a striking message that most people readily grasp and understand. Well, Jesus did something similar to this. He often told very simple stories. He frequently do verbal, he, he frequently drew verbal pictures of the world around him by telling parables. By teaching in parables, Jesus showed what was happening in real life. That is, he would typically tell a simple story taken from real life using a familiar setting to teach a new lesson, to teach a, a moral truth or, or a spiritual truth. Now that's essentially what a parable is. It's a simple story meant to tell a spiritual truth so that even a new Christian or, or even someone who isn't even a Christian can easily understand it. Now, I suspect that that's what Pastor Luke Evans told you the past two Sundays when he preached on, on two of the parables of Christ. I want to continue in this, and I want to preach on two more, uh, two more uh, from Matthew 25. 
The first is the parable of the ten virgins. That's our text for today. And then in two weeks, uh, I'll be back with you, and I'm going to preach on the parable of the talents, which follows this parable in Matthew 25. Why study these parables? Well, I suspect that you're very much like me, and in your spiritual walk, you sometimes get a little tired, or you get complacent or careless, and you just want to stay where you are, and just want to kind of chill out. You want to be comfortable. You're not ready to take risks for Christ. You don't want to move out of your comfort zone. And I've found that I've, as I've studied these stories, that more than any other portion of Scripture, they seem to break through my malaise. They break through my complacency, my fear. You know, these parables break through our mask, our facades. They tear down the barriers that we put up to keep people and God away from us. They break through mere words. And I think they make us honestly ask ourselves whether there has indeed been any real difference in our lives. Now, and isn't that what we would expect since they come from the lips of Jesus himself? You know, no one was ever better than Jesus at cutting through pretense to reality. And as much as it may hurt, that's what we really need to see in ourselves. So let's dive into this story and see what Jesus has for us this morning. And let me begin, I want to note its broader context for you. It's, I think it's interesting that only Matthew has recorded this parable. And he's skillfully, I think, placed it after Jesus' discourse on the Mount of Olives, in which he speaks about the end of the age. He talks about his second coming. In Matthew 24, verses 40 and 41, look there if you have your Bibles, Jesus speaks of a division between those who are chosen, those who are alert, prepared, and faithful, and those who aren't. He says, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And later on in that same chapter, verses 45 through 51, Matthew records the Lord saying that the faithful and wise servant is placed in charge of all of his master's possession. But the wicked servant is assigned a place with the hypocrites where there will be lots of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then in chapter 25, we come to this story of the ten virgins, or to perhaps update it for today, the story of the ten bridesmaids. And we see similarly that five enter the bridegroom's house, but the other five find the door locked. This theme of separating the good from the bad is continued in the following parable of the talents in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. And then chapter 25 concludes in a description of a shepherd separating the sheep from the goats in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. So, so I think you can see this is an important section of Scripture which pictures for us what's going to happen when Christ comes back. When He comes again, it's not going to be pretty. 
He's going to expose the fundamental difference between true Christians and nominal Christians. And every single one of these stories stresses the truth that now is the time for us to prepare for Jesus' second coming. Because when that day comes, and it will, and we don't know when it's going to come, then it will be too late to make any preparation. I hope you see that. Isn't that important for us to know? In this parable before us this morning, Jesus tells us about ten young women who were invited to a marriage feast. Five of these women, he says, were wise. Five were foolish. The wise women showed their wisdom by planning for the possible delay of the bridegroom, Jesus in this parable, and they took along extra oil for their lamps so they would be ready when he came. The foolish women didn't do that. And while they waited, it says here in the text that all of them fell asleep. And suddenly a cry went out that the bridegroom was coming. And the wise women got up and they trimmed their lamps. The others saw that they were out of oil. They asked the others if they could borrow some. The answer they got was no way since there won't be enough for us and for you. You know, go down to the local 7-Eleven and buy some for yourself. And so the women who were unprepared started off. But while they were gone, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the feast. Later, the foolish virgins returned. They found the door barred. Lord, Lord, open to us, they cried. But the bridegroom said, I don't know you. And so Jesus concludes the parable by saying, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Well, that's the parable. And I think we can see that, that these women, they were alike in many respects. But in their preparation, they're not alike. In fact, they're perfect opposites. And it's on that fundamental difference, I think, that the spiritual teaching of this parable turns. Let me just look first for a minute at the ways in which these women were the same. We see a number of ways, I think, right on the surface of the parable. I'd like for you to note, first of all, that this parable is talking about church members. These are professed Christians who are being addressed here. This story is not intended for people who are not interested in Christ. It's not intended for outsiders. This story is intended for insiders, for people who profess Christ, who claim to be Christians, who are members of the church. It's intended for us. Now, it's a good thing to be a church member, all Christians ought to be members of a good church. But being a member, a church member, never saved anybody. Foolish virgins may believe that being a church member is an indication that they're saved. Yet Jesus may one day say to them, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Also, I'd like for you to note that all ten of these women had a correct belief of who Christ was. 
They believed in his deity. Now, I'm not sure about this, uh, but I think so. I think they believed in the deity of Christ. Now, I say that because of the way these foolish women uh, use the word Lord in verse 11. Now, I know that the word kurios, which is used here, can simply be a formal way of addressing someone, meaning only sir. Maybe that's even the way your Bible translates the word here. But it seems to me that in this context, the word actually refers to the deity of Christ, that these foolish virgins were in fact acknowledging Jesus as God. You know, if that's true, then this parable isn't addressed to those whose beliefs are questionable, but to those who knew the truth. These women were orthodox. They had the correct definition of Jesus. They knew who he was. You know, true Christians have to have the right facts about Jesus from the, from the Bible, recognizing who he really is. But dear ones, mere head knowledge is no guarantee that one is saved. You can know about Jesus and not know Jesus. One can know this and still be a foolish virgin. Also, I think it's interesting to note that all of these women were expectantly awaiting the bridegroom. You know, all of them had been invited to, to the banquet. They had responded to it. They went. I think they anticipated a great feast when the bridegroom came. You know, clearly they all had, they all had some kind of affection, some sort of love. <laughs> For the bridegroom because they took their lamps and they went out to meet him. But there was this is not the final test. Being knowledgeable about the events of the return of Christ and even anticipating them in some fashion is not an absolute guarantee that one is not a foolish virgin. So I think those are just three characteristics right on the surface of the parable which wise and foolish virgins share. Now, all real Christians exhibit those characteristics. But so do most nominal Christians. So they're not necessarily proof that you're a wise virgin. Now, I think these three characteristics of both wise and foolish virgins should alert us to perhaps some other things which might make people believe that they're wise to salvation. You know, I think a lot of people think that the pocketbook test, giving liberally is the acid test, that one is a Christian. You know, I do believe that true Christians are liberal givers to the cause of Christ, but that's not a guarantee that one is a Christian. The Bible does say, that we're required to be good stewards of our resources, but they're simply on loan from God. Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. But we have to remember the Pharisees gave liberally. The scripture says that they tithed mint and dill and cumin, but they neglected the weightier things of the law. And Christ says very clearly that they were not justified. And Paul tells the Corinthians, look, 
Even if you give away all that you have, but have not love, you gain nothing. So, I think liberal giving is important, but it's not absolute proof that you're a real Christian. Well, what about prayer? Most people think that prayer is the most holy activity. And though essential if one is truly a Christian, it's not proof, I think, that you're a wise person. There is such a thing, I believe, as the prayer of the wicked. It does exist. You know, I was a soldier for 25 years. I've heard many soldiers pray in foxholes, asking God to protect them. But when God did protect them, many promptly forgot him. You know, one can pray regularly, as the Pharisees did. They prayed regularly and not be a Christian. I think the absence of prayer proves that one is foolish. But the presence of prayer doesn't necessarily prove that one is wise. Well, I'm going to get myself in more trouble here. What about bringing someone to Christ? Surely that's a sure sign that a person is born again. Not necessarily. In Philippians 1, verses 12 through 18, Paul tells us that some people preach Christ from impure motives. If you recall that passage, those people hated Paul. A true gospel was being preached from a false heart. An evil, unsaved heart. It wasn't preached for Jesus Christ. It wasn't preached out of his spirit. But it's interesting. Paul rejoiced in this. Why? Because Christ was preached and people were saved. Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do many works in your name? And then Jesus says this amazing thing. He says to these people, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It seems from all this that a person could preach the true gospel and actually have it anointed with divine power so that hearers are converted and yet himself not be converted. So I think, and I think those are just some of the ways, it seems to me, that these wise and foolish virgins may be similar. And none of them are sure proof that a person is a wise virgin. So what's the point that Jesus is pressing on us here? Well, the story reveals that when the bridegroom came suddenly, every single one of these similarities among the ten women vanished. And that's when the essential difference among them emerged. Jesus tells us here that five had oil in their lamps. Five didn't. Five were ready. Five were prepared. Five weren't. So I believe the heart of this story is the significance of the oil because that's the one thing on which these women differ. So what is the oil? Well, I, I have to tell you that commentators differ on this. But I want to suggest to you that the oil represents the Holy Spirit. The foolish virgins lacked the Holy Spirit. You know, they had lots of other things going for them. They had lots of false props. But they didn't have the Holy Spirit, which was the only thing, the only thing which would get them into the feast 
when the bridegroom came. I think it's significant to note that oil is often used in the Bible to refer to the Holy Spirit. And according to the Lord Jesus in this parable, only by the inward working of the Holy Spirit can one be born again. Can one be ready when the bridegroom comes and be invited into the marriage feast? Now, we do have a little problem here. Some people argue that the oil here cannot be the Holy Spirit because the foolish virgins started out with oil. But they ran out of it. And they had to go back and get some more. Verse 8 seems to indicate that. And they asked, you know, how can you run out of the Holy Spirit? I thought you either had the Holy Spirit or you don't. Well, in responding to this, I think we need to remember how the Holy Spirit works in people's lives. I think he works in basically two ways. In some cases, he works upon people. The Holy Spirit strives with some men, convicting them of sin and judgment. He works upon some men without taking up residence in them. You see, that kind of striving, working, doesn't convert men. In other words, the Holy Spirit can work upon a person and that person can still be a foolish virgin. Now, remember the passage in Hebrews 6 where, where Paul is talking. He's talking about unbelieving church members there. He says this, For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come. If they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. I believe that the best interpretation of these verses is that in some cases, the Holy Spirit does work upon certain men, but not in a saving way. On the other hand, the Holy Spirit works within some men, creating a new life. Jesus explained all that in John 3 to Nicodemus when he told him, you must be born again. You know, as the Holy Spirit takes up residence within a believer, there's a new basis for the way we think, the way we act, that of love and service. So I think the distinguishing mark of the true Christian is the presence of the Holy Spirit in one's heart. The Holy Spirit invades the person. He takes up residence within the person. And I think that is what distinguishes the wise from the foolish virgins here. Well, we're, we're closing in, I think, on the burden of, this, of the parable. And it's a question that we all have to ask ourselves. How do I know for sure that I have oil in my lamp? How do I know for sure that I'm a wise virgin, that I'm truly born again of the Spirit? You know, we live in an uncertain world. A world which today is as confused and unstable as it has ever been. But dear ones, into this world, Christianity breathes a note of certainty. And this certainty, I think, is nowhere more clear than we find in the New Testament epistle of 1 John. You know, according to this short letter, tucked away in the, in the backwater of the New Testament, 
John says that a Christian can know with absolute certainty two things. He can know, first of all, that Christianity is true. And can know, second, that he or she is a true Christian. You know, this is the primary reason that John wrote this letter. Listen to what he says in 1 John 5.13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. See, John wants his readers. He wants us to be assured of their salvation, to know that they have oil in their lamps. That's why he wrote the letter. And he does this by giving us, I think your outline says three tests. I found another one this week. He actually gives us four tests to either prove or disprove the validity of our experience of God. And let me just quickly go through them with you. First John gives us what I call the moral test which is the test of obedience or righteousness. In 1 John 2, verses 3 through 5, he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a lie, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Now, that doesn't mean that that we're going to be sinless. John tells us earlier in the book that whoever claims that is lying. It simply means, I think, that, that you'll be moving in a direction marked out by the righteousness of God. You're moving in that direction. Are you doing that? You know, if you're not doing this, if you're not increasingly, for example, troubled by your sin, then John says that you're not a child of God regardless of what you profess. In other words, if we say, we have to do. If we talk, then we must walk. Or it's just so many words. Then we're just blowing smoke. The second test is what I call the social test, or the test of love. In 1 John 3, verses 14 and 15, we read, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has entered life, has eternal life living in him. See, this is the question that John raises here. Does the one who professes to love God love others as well? If he does, he can be sure that he has been made alive by God. If he doesn't, John says, that person has no right to consider himself a child of God, no more right than the one who says that he knows God but doesn't obey his commandments. Now we need to take a look at ourselves. Do you enjoy being around other Christians? Are they your friends? Do you love coming to church? and seeing them on Sunday at small group at prayer time. If you do, then you can be confident that you have oil in your life. John's third test is what I call the doctrinal test, or the test of truth. 
1 John 4, verses 2 and 3, we read, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now I want you to note that this truth that John speaks of here is, is not, he's not talking here about head knowledge. He's talking about true saving faith in the objective biblical facts of who Christ is. It's a transfer of truth from the head to the heart and then to the feet and hands. In action. John says there's one final test to give us assurance that we're true Christians, and it's what I, I call the test of endurance. If one endures to the end of his life, trusting in God to sustain him, he can be absolutely certain that he's a true Christian. You know, some people seem to start the Christian life and then they fall away which is an indication that they were not truly followers of Christ in the first place. John says in 1 John 2, verses 19 and 20, They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. If you persevere until the end, it's because... God's indwelling spirit preserves you. Well, this story, I think of, and I'll conclude with this, I think this story of the ten bridesmaids, it should be very sobering to all of us who call ourselves followers of Christ. You know, as we sung earlier, it, it reminds us of the absolute importance of watchfulness and heart religion if we're going to be prepared for the day of the Lord's coming. And this kind of watchfulness requires careful self-examination. You know, take a close look at how you stack up against those four tests that John proposes. We have to ask ourselves if we truly are in Christ. You know, are we, are we truly trusting Him alone for salvation? Or are we depending upon something else? Something in addition to that? And are we living in such a way that we're prepared now for his return then? Because, dear ones, when that day comes, the day of opportunity is past. You see, I think that's the, that's the fundamental moral of this parable. When he comes again, it's too late then to get prepared. The door will be closed. You must be prepared now. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of preparation. Trust in Christ today and live for him. And I want you to note one final point here. That, that you can't borrow oil from somebody else. Saving grace is not transferable. This preparation is not transferable. Your mother can't do it for you. Your father can't do it. Your brother can't do it for you. Your friends can't do it for you. Your husband, your wife, they can't do it for you. Only you can make this preparation. Are you prepared for the day of His coming? Dear ones, on that last day, 
as this congregation gathers before the Lord and we hold hands before the throne, I don't want a single one of you to be unprepared and so to miss hearing those wonderful words, well done, my good and faithful servants. Come and enjoy the glory that I have prepared for you. Now is the time. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, in this hour, there is no greater priority for us than to make sure that our hearts are prepared by trusting in Jesus Christ and receiving oil in our lives. We ask, O Lord, that you would implant in each of us a desire for Christ and for his kingdom above all else, that we would truly trust not ourselves, nor our faith, nor our church membership, nor our giving, nor any other false prophet, but to trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. We ask it in his name. Amen.